One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Peter Ho Davies author of the novel, A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself. The tension of it, the intensity of it, is always waiting just below the surface to push through. So you can sort of feel that tension, I hope, pushing at the language as we're moving through the course uh, of the piece. We'll be back with Peter Ho Davies in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven and a half years, I've produced more than 320 episodes of First Draft. Last year, I produced one a week, and already I have interviews scheduled for every week so far through June. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved. Time and effort and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. We're going through monumental changes as a society, and as I discussed with the writer Claire Massoud in an interview late last year, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and I believe that what we create, the writers and I and you, the listener, matters. There's an alchemy that happens with every single interview and every single production, So please, if you value this program, consider becoming a contributing member by donating at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount, but starting with $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show 
including ad-free, pitch-free episodes, cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. I believe these conversations about art and craft make life better. I hope you find inspiration and enlightenment of some kind in this and every episode. So whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 320 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft. I work hard to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics, which dependably add up to conversations that focus on what it means to be alive today. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview, then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, edit the show, and do more research. Because at the end of the shows, I recommend other shows I've done in the past that are similar. All of this takes more time than you can probably imagine. It takes equipment, organization, a lot of late nights, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. In fact, tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. My guest today is Peter Ho Davies, author of three novels and two short story collections. His novel, The Fortunes, was a New York Times notable book and was a finalist for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. His first novel, The Welsh Girl, was long listed for the Booker Prize. His short story collection, The Ugliest House in the World, won two awards, including the Oregon Book Award, and his other short story collection, Equal Love, was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize and was a New York Times notable book. Davies has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. He teaches at the University of Michigan. His latest novel, A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself, is a spare narrative that chronicles the journey to fatherhood of an unnamed protagonist. The father at the heart of the story is struggling after his unborn child is diagnosed with a possible catastrophic deformity. The question of whether to abort the pregnancy haunts the main character, even after the decision is made. He and his wife go on to have a son who is diagnosed as twice exceptional. He is both highly intelligent and also on the spectrum. A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself asks large questions about responsibility and shame destiny and regret and chance and choice. We began the interview with Peter Ho Davies, 
answering this question that I asked him. I have read some things that you've written that reflect that some of this novel is reflective of your own life. Why was now the time to write this book for you? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, as I've said, I think uh, in other places, it's one of those books, which I think is actually true, I would say, of um, most of my books, although maybe more explicitly in this particular case, that, um, you know, some of the parts are certainly true in the sense of being drawn from life. I would say actually that probably the entirety of my work is somehow um, emotionally autobiographical, but this is a little closer to home. And yet I'd also nonetheless argue that even though the parts um, in some instances are, are drawn from life, the whole remains uh, fictional, I think. Um, as to why now, I mean, the book has had a, like most of my works, uh, a longish uh, gestation period. Um, the first chapter is a story that I wrote uh, probably the best part of 12 years ago and published probably about 10 years ago. Um, and I think even as I wrote that, I thought, well, maybe I'm, you know, that's the, the thing I'm writing. This is the section I'm done with it now that I've written um, this uh, story. But um, but the material had stayed with me over time. Um, I occasionally read that story um, at readings or to audiences, and it had always... Um, been a powerful experience to read, but also a powerful experience to um, hear from uh, people in the audience afterwards. It clearly kind of resonated with a number of people, and there would be an interesting kind of sense of connection with certain people in the audience around that. And so those things, you know, kept it alive for me as material, kept it sort of ticking over for me, I think. Um, and as I was finishing up my last novel, The Fortunes, I, I felt like I had a way into expanding that material and leaning into it. Um, and even though I was actually under contract to write another collection of short stories, my editors and agents were very patient with me and interested in this idea. They sort of gave me enough rope to sort of explore this um, this possibility. And it gradually grew from a story, becoming a longer story, to maybe becoming a novella, into becoming a short novel over the course of two or three years. Have you had other stories like that that you've written years ago that stayed with you? Or was this unique in that it just wouldn't let go of you in some way? This was actually pretty unique, I would say. You know, most of the time, and one of the pleasures, I think, of the short story form is you get to work intensely on something. And I think for me, they are only done when I feel as though, you know, I've completed some journey with the story mostly. I very rarely let them out into the into the world or try to publish them until I feel as though I have that kind of done this. So I'll often hold on to them for a long time. But once they're out there, once I um, put them into print, I'm generally feeling like they're in a situation where I can I can leave them. They can they can have their own uh, life with readers. And maybe for this one as well, you know, because it um, that opening chapter is a uh, a passage in a section about parenthood frustrated. The characters involved, as you know, um, uh, are pregnant but have a very catastrophic sort of prenatal test result and decide to abort the, um, the pregnancy. Um, that, you know, in the intervening years, uh, the characters, but also uh, I and my wife have had a child, see that child grow. So there's a way in which um, one experience resonates, I think, with the other. Um, and that's something the book explores, but also clearly something that I was feeling in my own life as well. I think if you have the book in front of you, I'm wondering if you could just read the first paragraph. Sure. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to do that. There was a chance the baby was normal. There was a chance the baby was not. Fetus, he told himself. There was a chance the fetus was normal. There was a chance that it was not. 
she, he told himself. That was a result of one of the tests on the fetus. There was a chance that she was normal. There was a chance that she was not. Jesus. So I wanted you to read that because I feel like, well, you're talking about this story that catapulted the rest of the book, but also there's such a strong voice that just in that paragraph, you got a sense, you use a lot of repetition in the language. It's spare and simple language. There's the idea embedded in that of, of randomness and chance and that you don't really know exactly what's going to happen, but you know you're going to be on a journey with this man. And there's also a sort of um, distance that, that you see as you continue to read between the protagonist. It's, it's like an omniscient sense. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit just about that style for the story. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because it's, you know, it's an intimate piece, but it's also told in the third person. There's a kind of, um, there's a kind of distance and I think um, maybe a kind of effort to contain the intensity of the emotion through that simple language, through the listing of various uh, uh, details. Um but at the same time, I, th I think and I hope and I, I think I felt this as, as the writer and I think it's also true for the character that that feeling, um, the tension of it, the intensity of it is always waiting just below the surface to push through. So you can sort of feel that tension, I hope, pushing at the language as we're moving through the course uh, of the piece. Um, but I did want that sort of stripped down style. I mean, it extends, I think, even for me to um, not just the you know, the bareness of the language, but also um, the fact that this book is sort of composed in, in sort of short uh, half-page to page-long vignettes, some even shorter than that. And so there's a lot of white space in between. It reminds me, again, a little bit of poetry, as you are mentioning that. Um, but I think I was also trying um, to suggest in a way um, that this can't be the whole story, right? There are always sort of gaps. There are things left out. Um, it's a very much a sort of a man's or a father's perspective on parenthood and implicitly, I think, is acknowledging that, um, you know, the mother's perspective and to some degree the child's perspective too can't be included from that point of view, but I'm hoping that it'll encourage readers to maybe read between the lines a little bit and extrapolate into those spaces uh, as well. Um, but also I hope it'll draw readers into um, into the book too to try and fill those gaps, um, to sort of think into some of those spaces um, and, you know, and, and sort of populate the book in a strange way. You know, the characters aren't even named, they're just the father and the mother and the boy. And there's a way I think that I'm trying to not just go for a kind of universalism, the kind of every man kind of quality, um, but maybe also to suggest there is a space here that we can, as readers, sort of find ourselves in as well. You know, one of the magical qualities of the book was that there is this distance that you create. You don't name the characters. You don't know where they are exactly in the country. And you have this white space and the spareness. But through that, it's incredibly intimate and close to this person. It seems like it would be a paradox between the style and the content, but it's not. Yeah, you know, and to some degree, some of these choices feel intuitively right. And that's one of those that I think came to me fairly early. So probably the answer I would give, it's not uh, maybe the most insightful, but it, 
I suppose it felt like the only way I could write this. Um, it, there may also, I mean, I sometimes joke about this uh, with, with friends. Um, you know, as you can tell a little bit still from my accent, I was born and brought up in Britain, even though I've lived in the US now for more than half my life. Um, there's some residual Britishness, I think. There's some negotiation between intimacy and reticence um, that I probably live with in, uh, in daily life. Uh, but it's also, I think, somehow... Um, uh, in this work, uh, it's not in all of my work, I think, but I think it's um, it's somehow uh, floating around in the background of this, an ability to sort of say, I will be this frank up to this point, but also reserve um, a little space of reticence or even deniability. It's one of the reasons why I'm interested in the way the book sort of hovers in that space between fiction and fact much of the time. Well, one of the things your your main character is is a writer and a teacher, and so there are commentaries about storytelling and writing and fiction and subtext. And I want to talk about some of that stuff. But one of the things that your character says basically about fiction is that it can be 1% true and 99% made up or 99% true and 1% made up. And that still means that it's fiction. And I was wondering, as a writer, when you're writing about things that may be more true for you, if it comes out on a page in a way that maybe feels more complete or more pregnant with meaning or subtext or connections to other things than if you're writing something that is like 99% fiction, I think, you know, and, and you're right, the, the book is certainly sort of self-conscious about these writerly choices. I, I was um, actually thinking recently uh, about the roots of the word author, you know, which, you know, include things like, you know, etymological links to things like um, authority. But I think if you go back far enough in the in the Latin uh, derivations, there's a sense of author uh, sharing some roots with words like father and also words like teacher. So the idea that it's a sort of self-consciously writerly book featuring a father who's also a writer and a teacher sort of um, make a certain degree of sense. Um, in retrospect, I'm not sure I was consciously aware of that in the midst of it. Um, but the question of, you know, those that line about the percentages, you know, 99% of it can be made up or, or true and the 1%, we just, we're not quite sure if it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, the one thing I would say in differing from my um, from my narrator in that regard, um, even though I enjoy that kind of deniability, that kind of cover, I think he talks about it as like taking the fifth, essentially one of the it's one of the pleasures of fiction. I think it's one of the spaces that actually allows fiction very often to be more vulnerable than at least for me, if I were writing this uh, strictly as nonfiction, I think it would be um, harder in some ways to be that vulnerable. Um, but the tricky part is that in the midst of it, one doesn't know where the percentages lie. It's not quite as calculated as that. Um, it's hard, in fact, to disambiguate where fact and fiction leave off. You know, we were talking earlier on about the gaps in the book. Um, and given that the, the book covers, you know, um, a decade or more of a child's life in various ways, um, 
uh, but does so in about 200 pages, inevitably those gaps leave a great deal out. And some of those things are things that, um, you know, uh, in a common experience of parenthood, I just don't remember. Um, probably there are some things in there that I misremember. Um, but the gaps themselves speak to the idea that what's left out makes what's left behind, um, even if it were all true, which it's not, um, but even if it were, it would still be fiction because of what's left out in various ways. So this is a strange sort of alchemical experience. Um, and I think there is a way in which all writers, when we delve back into lived experience or past experience, um, are open to the possibility of understanding it differently uh, and understanding it in ways we might not have understood uh, when we were experiencing that. And the question might be, how true is the uh, later understanding uh, if we didn't feel it at the moment? But I'd argue that that later understanding has an enormous and valuable truth um, that we're uncovering. And it's one of the things we're writing into when we go back and explore those experiences. I'm not sure that's a great answer to the question, Mitzi, but it, you provoked some uh, interesting thoughts on my part, at least. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors into people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, well, let's talk about the protagonist. So he is unnamed. We just heard the very beginning of of his dilemma at the onset, which is that he and his wife are expecting a child that turns out to be questionably having something called mosaicism and will will not be a healthy child and they have to make the decision if they want to abort the pregnancy because they'll never be really sure if it's going to be very compromised in life and so they make a decision and and this decision follows him around for his life, questioning the decision, but also just what it means for his life, what it means as a father, a man, a husband, someone in society. And they go on to have another child who they later learn is development mentally behind. And he's called twice exceptional because he's gifted on one level and then on the spectrum. So that's kind of the the goings on of the book. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the the dad's character, who you wanted him to be. Who did I want him to be? That's a great question. Um, 
you know, I wanted him to be a fairly flawed uh, human being, but one who's, uh, as I think many of us do, questioning and wondering about the extent of those flaws, trying to examine those and think into them in various ways. Somebody to be reflective about his own um, actions and behaviors, but also be struggling with that sense of reflection uh, in the midst, say, of early parenthood, when there's barely any time to be reflective, I think, many about the, many of those things as well. Um, so there's, I hope, a kind of a, a sense of this sort of shuttling back and forth, being caught up in uh, the challenging moments of parenthood and also trying to find space um, to have some thoughts, to think about the past, to think about what's going on, to sort of step away from the, um, the sort of the hurly-burly of current um, and pressing, you know, events in a family's life. And then he, he really was struggling with the abortion. It wasn't something that they took lightly. It was also something that they'll never really know if the child would have been okay or not. So he has to live with that. And he, he wonders a lot about like the man's ownership and claim over abortion. You have some, some text in there where he's thinking about it and he's thinking about the language you, you use when you say like, we have a child that includes the man and, and the husband and the wife in this case that that it's their child, but they don't say we had an abortion. And he's also thinking about, is it a choice if there is no other choice? So, I mean, this is a big question in our politics and in our world. And you weren't, you got into some of the politics, but it was also just the personal journey that someone takes when this is a decision that they made. Yeah, that was pretty important to me as I was working through the book. I mean, I think um, what sort of haunts these characters is the sense of uncertainty of the diagnosis that they receive that leads them to terminate the first pregnancy. Um, that uncertainty, since we were talking about percentages of fiction and fact previously, um, uh, is heavily tilted, of course, towards a, a very negative diagnosis, um, much more than a 99% chance of a kind of terrible outcome. But I think we all tend to obsess um, about that sliver of hope. Maybe we're encoded to think along those lines. There's always that little what if, that tiny percentage of how it might have otherwise turned out. So there is, I think, this haunting sense of uncertainty that the characters um, operate with. And that causes them often to sort of question certain things and think into those spaces. Um, and I think that's something that... Um, you know, motivated the book. There's a kind of open-ended question of uncertainty, I think, that maybe drew me from that st initial story space into the longer space of the novel. Um, and I think it also probably informs the the shape of the book as well. You know, we were just talking about that sense of the book sort of playing with this idea that it could be fiction or it could be fact. And I think that leaves a question of uncertainty for the reader as they encounter the book. Um, and I'm content to, and in fact, in, indeed intend that question of uncertainty be there for the reader because it feels like it's a useful analog to the uncertainty that the characters themselves are grappling with through the course of the book. So it's another way of drawing the reader close to the character's experience in a certain sense. Um, and, and as to the politics of this, I think that um, that space of uncertainty too feels like it gets um, politicized, a word that, um, that I thought about a lot in the context of the book. Um, 
was regret, which feels as though it's a very uh, natural and human reaction, but the one that has been um, weaponized, actually, I would argue, in the political debate. Um, it's as if if women regret abortion, that means they shouldn't have done it, whereas it seems perfectly plausible to me that one would regret the circumstances behind abortion or even the necessity of abortion. Um, and to make people feel somehow defensive about their regret, um, to consider their regret to somehow be um, an invalidation of their decision feels like a narrowing of an understanding of human emotion, I think, in various ways. And so I wanted my characters to be able to think into um, and to own their regret without making it feel as though, on the one hand, it was conforming to um, uh, political tropes from the right, and on the other hand, that it might be feeling as though it were being disloyal to the left, where I think, um, you know, and quite rightly, many women don't regret their abortions, nor should they, but I think um, it feels as though to claim some regret might almost feel as though one is um, therefore leaning into a kind of political narrative that comes from the right in various ways. What, what I think I concluded as I was working my way through this is um, that the emotions that these characters at least go through, and I do think everyone's experience of parenthood and everyone's experience of abortion are very different and very individual. Um, but for these characters, it felt as though the emotional territory that they were negotiating didn't fit very comfortably or very easily into the political boxes that one might wish to try and force them into. And in fact, that that politicization felt as though it was a kind of denial of the humanity uh, of people experiencing an exp uh, you know a process like this. Um, you know, so for the characters, it's a kind of questing movement through the context of the book. I think at one point, um, one of the characters sort of, you know, in their examination of regret points out that it's not really regret, it's grief. And I think that seems right to me. It's the, the question in some ways is, um, how do we grieve this life um, that wasn't quite uh, and that does feel like it's a recurring question that runs through the context of the book. Um, and it felt as though the characters were sort of uncovering and delving into that meaning of regret, I think. Well, one of the ways that you brought this conundrum to life, because it's not like there's ever a clear answer, was you related it to this quantum mechanics thought experiment called Schrodinger's cat. And it was a trope throughout the book that came up for the main character, something that he was thinking about. Um, can you talk about what that thought experiment is, how you thought about that to bring it into the book, and then the role of something like that that's it's not quite an allegory, but it's something that he kept coming back to, but also seemed to serve a function in the book to open up the questions even bigger. It's a concept that came naturally to me. It, it's, I think it's recently well known now in popular culture, but um, I, and I grant this to the character have a background in physics. I was an undergraduate studying physics many years ago before I became a writer. Um, so some of those concepts um, sort of emerged naturally as I, as I was thinking about this character. The thought experiment of Schrodinger's cat um, basically speaks to a kind of a quantum mechanical uncertainty. The idea is that there is a, a chance of um, radioactive decay of an isotope that will release a vial of poison in a box in which a cat has been placed, the lid has been closed. Um, but the, uh, the 
philosophically challenging conclusion is that we can't uh, know the fate of the cat until we open the box. And in fact, until we've observed the fate of the cat, um, the cat itself occupies um, the space of um, neither nourness, neither alive nor dead, but perhaps both of those things. So it's a um, it's a tricky uh, physical, but also uh, philosophical um, conundrum, as you put it. And uh, and that felt somehow to speak into this territory of uncertainty, right? How do we know something until we uh, run test results? Obviously, test results feel as though they come out of a space of science. And yet, you know, while we're so used to the idea that science may bring us some certainty, and I think it comes very close to that in many instances, the sliver of uncertainty, um, you know, that again, as we've talked before about obsesses, these characters felt like it called me back to that space. Um, with Schrodinger. But I think in a, maybe in a broader way, there are a few other thoughts uh, hovering in the back of my mind, um, writing the book and finishing the book. I mean, finishing the book a little bit only, mostly um, in revision and copy editing uh, over the last year or so. Of course, I've been very aware that separate of the uncertainty that these particular characters are struggling with, we as a, well, actually globally are struggling with the uncertainty of the pandemic, when it'll end, what it means, all those kind of questions, of course. Um, and maybe there's a sense in which, even separate to those experiences, most of our lives are beset by some level of uncertainty. And it began to feel as though this was a book that didn't necessarily have to provide answers, but could sort of uh, offer, I hope, maybe even a little bit of solace for readers um, by sharing the company of, right, of characters who are existing in that space of uncertainty, although, albeit in their own very particular way, I think. So that, that was one of the, the goals and the thoughts here as I was uh, thinking my way into um, the somewhat, you know, I think, fun and interesting uh, and also abstracted way of thinking about Schrodinger's cat. It's also a way for this character, I think, to intellectualize the uncertainty that he's going to, through by reaching out for a um, an example from his own sort of previous sort of intellectual life. And then amidst sort of the the science of that or, or using that as a way to think about these things, there's also a theme throughout of of chance. There's you you write this sections, like the first section is called chance, another one is called tales. There's um a, a story in there about you know, throwing a coin heads or tails and what are the chances it would come up heads or tails each time. But what if you only do it twice and it comes up the same, like there's um, all these questions around that. And I just wanted to ask you more about that idea. Well, I think, you know, for these characters, the, the, the statistics, the numbers, of course, they're dealing with questions of chance and the sort of intractability of chance, right? I think we often get frozen, um, in the face of, well, there's this choice or that choice. How do we choose between them? And I'm not always sure the numbers, even though they feel as they can sometimes be clear cut, necessarily guide us very helpfully um, in that regard. So I think that's one of the reasons why, again, they're obsessing about that. And you mentioned the book circles around certain themes and ideas return and recur and recur and recur. And I think it's because the characters themselves are kind of caught in a kind of um, in a kind of loop necessarily. I think they would be... Um, you know, obsessing about some of these spaces, returning to them over and over again in different contexts and revisiting them as they move through, um, uh, as they move through their lives, I think, as well. Um, it's funny, you know, we, when we were talking about um, uh, chance cropping up in this space and uncertainty in the context of Schrodinger's cat as well, I, I came to a point with it where um, I suppose I began to think of uh, 
the book, maybe every book, um, as a little bit like that box that the cat is in in Schrodinger's thought experiment. Um, you know, there's a way in which every book has a kind of lid, right? Every time we open the cover or even turn the page, it's like um, it's opening of a lid. And for the reader, there's a way in which until we observe it, until we read it, um, we don't quite know the fate of the characters enclosed in that book. And so there's an odd way in which that metaphor echoes outwardly even to, to the form of the writing, I suppose. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the character, too, has... It's like split between the things he can control and the things he can't. And I'm thinking about these in the plot and in in the things that consume his mind, but also also in the themes of the book. You have these ideas of Schrodinger's cat and you have these ideas of chance and who his kid is going to be and and the what are the chances that his kid will be twice exceptional. And those things are kind of out of out of his control but then there's also a lot of issues and thoughts about shame and pride and the role that he can take as a father I mean there's parts in there where he is inflicting moments of shame on his own son when he's trying to teach him to play ball and he says something like it's called catch not drop because the son drops the ball and you have a line in there that says they're so bound up in the love he feels how to feel one without inflicting the other. Like, how do you feel that love without inflicting shame? How do you have pride in your child when you're also really struggling? And these were also really important in the, in the novel. Yeah. I mean, I think this is somewhere encoded in the nature of um, parenthood uh, and of course, partly in the nature of fatherhood, right, that we are caught in this sort of binary between a kind of consciousness um, of our own power over a child, right, which can be um, hopefully used often for good to protect that child, uh, to bring up that child in good ways, um, to shape that child, I suppose, in certain ways as well, Um, but can also, as that flash of guilt he feels about passing on shame and about being uh, a little harsh when he's playing catch with the boy um the power can also be abused i think in some ways as well right so we're both i think acutely conscious of that power that responsibility and what it entails but i think there's also as you begin to suggest as well a consciousness here of uh, the limitations of that power. So we sort of pivot, I think, as parents, um, and I think it's one of the most challenging pivots from feeling as though we are the whole world for our children, that they are entirely dependent on us when they're tiny, um, and that gradually, uh, and it feels like it takes a long time, yet it also feels like it goes very quickly, we have to come to terms with the idea that we are not the whole world for that child and that um, to try and exert power over them uh, at a certain point becomes, uh, well, leans into that space of abuse. I think in certain ways. I think it's a really difficult pivot for parents. Um, and maybe, uh, you know, for this man particularly, it's a particularly tricky pivot, I think, for him. And he's thinking a lot, I think, even in the context of um, what he can think about or even do in regard to abortion, uh, thinking about some of the limits of um uh, male power, I think that's one of the things that um, the character begins to um, to think into and wonder about. So we get caught in that space of um, uh, 
pivoting, I think, and trying to negotiate that transition from feeling all powerful, maybe as a new parent in some ways, we're all responsible to having to let some of that go. And how we negotiate that transition seems really tricky um, and something that I think the character, but maybe all of us struggle with in various ways. I kind of walked away at the end. I wrote this in my notes and I I think it came from me, but it might have been something in the book that tipped me off. But I felt like overall it was almost like a coming of age tale for the parents. That's a really great description of that. I really like that. I, you know, that, that seems like a, a really accurate way of thinking about this. It's a way of in which parenthood is a, is a real rite of passage, I think, um, at a point when we think we're beyond the rites of passage in a strange way. I mean, I, um, I've i been talking and thinking a little bit recently about a kind of, well, I, I would maybe describe it as a as a change or a transition, but maybe these things coexist. But we're used to the idea of, um, very traditionally in novels, of what can sometimes be described as a marriage plot. You know, we might think back to um, Jane Austen classically in that regard, novels that all lead up to the coming together of two characters that we've often been rooting for them to come together. There are obstacles, there are surprises along the way, but we end up in that space of, and then reader, I married him kind of thing, right? We we move into that dynamic. And those books feel like they're about a particular kind of choice, the choice of a partner, I suppose, in various ways. And that feels very much like it's a kind of coming of age uh, moment. And I think very much so in in certain eras, that moment of marriage is a coming of age where uh, one generation sort of moves out of the household of their parents into um, a household of their own in various ways. But I I think maybe uh, partly through um, things like birth control, legalization of abortion, in the current moment, and maybe for the last you know hundred or so years, we've entered into a space where one of the significant coming of age choices is not necessarily about uh, only one's partner, but about the choice to have a child, because it feels that that becomes more of a choice point than it might have been in previous uh, uh, centuries in certain ways. Um, so there's a way in which I think this negotiation of not just choosing to have a child, but also how we grapple with that experience of having a child feels as though it's very shot through with questions of choice and therefore feels, I think, in some ways like a kind of rite of passage in many ways. So as a writing teacher, you, because your character was was a writing teacher, you had opportunities to write about writing. And some of the things you wrote about was um, you have something in there where you're talking about fuck subtext. Um, you're talking about like hills like white elephants and stories that might have been about AIDS. And you're you're talking a little bit about um, writing and what you can and can't and should and shouldn't write about and who is it for. And I'm wondering what your answers to these questions are, since the the character had some strong feelings. Yeah, I mean, the character has has pretty strong feelings about that. He thinks a lot about that Hemingway story, Hills Like White Elephants, because it's very famously, um, well, a story commonly taught, you know, in literature classes and also creative writing classes as an example of subtext. It's a, a story about abortion in which the word is never used and we sort of intuit the characters are talking about the subject um, while they have a sort of charged but sort of um, uh, unspoken dialogue in a strange way about the particular subject. Um, and I think, you know, the characters feeling differently about that story on the other side of having gone through an experience like that and a choice like that, um, and maybe seeing it less as, um, 
you know, an example of something teachable, but maybe something a little raw, but also I think being frustrated that, um, you know, like any story, maybe like my own book about that touches on abortion, it's hard to tell somebody else's uh, abortion story in various ways, right? And I think he's feeling the frustration that Hemingway's story can feel a little dated in various ways and that its avoidance of the term seems almost to um, perpetuate a kind of shame around the issue. Um, so there's a kind of backlash there, I suppose, in various ways, even though in many um, artistic and technical ways, it's an extremely admirable and interesting story to think about. Um, you know, in terms of my own uh, views on some of these questions where teaching is concerned, the Hemingway story, uh, I don't share those same views about per se, but it did feel as though that character's anger seemed appropriate. He's trying to think about how uh, how to think about, how to write about, how to speak about uh, this subject that sometimes feels beyond speaking, feels unspeakable, I think, in some senses. Um, and I suppose, suppose I do, um, you know, in teaching, it's funny, I was just, you know, writing an email to a class I have coming up in a week or two and trying to suggest that um, because every work I see from a student is so individual, the challenges of um, each piece of work or each story, each novel seem unique to that particular piece of work. So it's pretty hard to generalize, right? I, I like to preserve myself as I describe it, a kind of um, get out of jail free card as I'm teaching. Um, that, you know, I might say one thing of a particular piece of work one week in workshop and the next week uh, potentially say the opposite because the opposite may be more accurate in regard to the next piece of work we see with its own particular um, and unique uh, challenges that it's facing. Um, I actually think that's kind of the wonder, but also sometimes the vexation of the work, right, that it is so... Um, protein it changes so much from individual to individual it's what keeps the teaching for me incredibly fresh uh, but also requires a kind of flexibility of mind and thinking um, that I think is challenging for everybody in some ways as well but I, I like to encourage my students to think that that get out of jail free card is a way of um, you know pushing back on I think the temptation we all have particularly when we enter into a new space and for many of them you know writing is a new space we want rules right we want to be told how to do this it's one of the reasons we clutch to ideas like write what you know, you know, write about sympathetic characters, um, you know, rules that, um, you know, feel at best like rules of thumb. They're the kind of the old wives tale of tales of creative writing. They have a, a kind of folk wisdom that's true up to a point, although I think very often the exceptions to those rules are the most important things to think about. And the rules themselves can, uh, if taken a little bit too much to heart, can feel restrictive or constrictive, I think, of our own uh, creativity. So I try to encourage them to be flexible and try to allow myself to have that flexibility as well as I encounter their work. So, you know, the character expresses things that he uh, feels and believe, and I have felt and believed many of those things about teaching myself. Um, but I also reserve the right to change my mind about them in respect to whichever student work is, you know, the subject of discussion in any particular week. Well, in his his own search for wisdom and understanding one of the things the character does is he goes to a clinic um a health clinic to w escort women in who are having abortions and i think he thinks but you can let me know please that you know somehow that will either make him feel like he's taking a stand or understand his own choice or protect others um, or, or just face the mobs who, who 
don't agree with it and how he'll react. And so that's, that's something he does in the middle of the book. And he meets a woman there named Barb. Um, although we find out that might not be her name because she is protecting her own identity. She's the only one in the book that has a name. And I'm just wondering about this plot point and then the choice to name her. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons why she's enabled to have a name is because it's a fictional name, right? It's a pseudonym she's chosen herself. Uh, she jokes about um, uh, naming herself after Barbara Bush at one point. Um, you know, and I think, um, you know, in some of the research I did, um, you know, which is somewhat replicated in, in that character, there's an idea that it sometimes can actually be helpful um, when you're staring down protesters to feel as though there's some kind of connection. It's helpful to have a name that they can call you and maybe even know some of their names. So this is odd. Um, camaraderie would not be the right word for it, but an odd kind of effort at human connection. It's one of the ways I think um, uh, some escorts try to manage the situation, I think, in various ways uh, and to ameliorate the, the tensions that occur, can occur in those spaces. Um, but Barb is also conscious of the fact that she lives in this town and the people who are protesting live in this town. Uh, and I think having offering them a name gives is a useful handle, but I don't think she necessarily feels that it's very safe or sensible to offer them her real name in that particular context. So that's sort of where that's coming from. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but the there are other reasons why, in Barb's case, um, she's sort of singled out for a name. But I think it's largely because that name is um, is kind of a label. It's not quite her real name, so her real name was is withheld in the text, just as the other characters' real names are also, I think, withheld or, or shielded in a strange way. Um, and for the character himself, you're right. I, there are a a multitude of motivations. Um, why he chooses to volunteer in that regard. I think he's trying to um, explore some experiences. I think he says even at one point that uh, he's conscious that um, they didn't have to cross a line of protesters. And so there's a way in which he's interested in sort of testing himself, I think, in some ways as well. But he's also thinking about how he can help. It's one of his constant pleas, how can I help? Um, and I think he's running into eventually uh, over the course of the book, and this also goes to that question of the limitations of power and maybe male power, the limitations of what one can do to help. Um, but I think he's trying to explore, um, you know, a role and a relationship to that experience that he's gone through. And I think he's really mining his own feelings. I think by putting himself in this situation where it's not his wife needing an abortion again at the time he's watching other people go through it he's trying to figure out how he really feels and and one of the things that barb helps him think about is that there's really a difference between regret and grief and that he might be naming his emotions wrong right exactly i think that's you know that's part of the exploration here and i think that's also i mean it's true for him but i think it's also um one of the reasons why I was interested in writing that sequence in the book, that I was very aware that uh, my particular characters have a very individual and particular experience of abortion. And I didn't want it to feel as though their experience in the book spoke for that larger experience. I didn't want to sort of uh, claim any kind of universalization of that. There is that strong sense in which um, 
different people going through that experience have very different experiences, very different motivations, very different reasons. And for him to encounter um, other people, other women having to come to that clinic for their own reasons, I think it's eye-opening to him, I think, in certain ways. But it's also a way of sort of broadening um, the book's address to the topic. Obviously, I can't do it complete justice, wouldn't dream of doing so, can't do it, of course, within this limited space of the book. But it's an acknowledgement that there are countless other abortion stories out there, not just the one that's sort of central for these particular characters. I want to also be clear that everything we're talking about is very serious, but your book is also funny. And one of the um, funny repeating things in the book is the dad jokes that the the protagonist tells and I was curious about your access to dad jokes like you just have so it's like you have a private line to the dad joke pile so I'm curious about um your access to dad jokes and then what do you think makes a dad joke (laughs) that's a great question and I appreciate you pointing out that the book is I hope quite funny um you know it is you know it is very serious. I think in some ways it's not these two things are intentionally actually go together. I think when we laughter for me is so much of a release of tension that if you're writing about darker, um, more intense experiences, it's sort of natural that laughter comes out of that space as well. Um, you know, it's funny. There are some references to uh, particular, you know, um, and probably somewhat familiar dad jokes but i suppose there's a strange way in which the whole experience of dadness is is a joke right it's one of the things that um uh, the character thinks about and other dads he talks to think about that there's almost a way i think one figure is accused of telling a lot of dad dad jokes as a kind of preemptive move he's he's going to tell the joke on himself before somebody else tells it on him and that does feel like it's one of the things that um you know dads but also maybe parents in general think into in various ways again maybe that's a a way of negotiating that movement from uh, the all-powerful parent of the new baby to the oh i guess by now i'm not so powerful about it we have to sort of negotiate that maybe through life after along the way. Um, but, I, you know, I think um, there's a way too in which um, those dad jokes are just, oh, the self-deprecation feels really important to me. Maybe it feels somewhat British to me as well. So maybe it comes naturally in that particular regard. But it's also a way to negotiate the world um, and, and maybe even a stance of the book, right? You know, somebody... Um, uh, a friend of mine uh, spoke to me about the book and described it, you know, in, in in many flattering terms, but also described it as a modest book. And I took that as actually as a high compliment. The book is intended to be um, small and modest and I hope self-deprecating in its address of large and awesome questions um, that I want to raise, but I don't you know, I stand in a kind of humility before in terms of even attempting to offer answers in respect to those. It's interesting, too, because the dad joke can go either way, right? It can, the, the, the kid can just think it's hilarious or it can be like a way that the kid, another way that the kid could maybe ridicule the parent, um, right. even in a loving way. But another thing that you mentioned in the book that is that the most frightening judgment in the world is the judgment of our children. And I wanted to ask you about this concept, but also how like dad jokes can, can lead into that. 
Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about that. Um, you know, I think on, in an odd way, dad jokes, uh, which are often bad puns, uh, are also, you know, the kind of jokes that kids love and tell, right? So there's a strange way in which the dad joke reaches out to the kid joke. There is a line in the um, uh, in the book that is drawn from life. It's a joke um, uh, that my son told, um, you know, when he was very young. Uh, we were at a, a kind of, a, I think, a Dairy Queen nearby, um, and he was, you know, eaten into his his blizzard or something. And um, and for whatever reason, that particular day, um, the uh, the area outside the Dairy Queen where we were sitting was very empty. And he said, as he tucked into the dessert, um, "This place is deserted." And you know, looked at me slyly, and it felt like it was his first sort of punning joke. It's kind of a dad joke told by a kid, right? I think in certain ways. And so maybe the dad jokes are an effort to um, to connect with our children as well, to tell jokes that they'll get and respond to, I think, in that sense. And of course, you know, when we think about that judgment, which I think we all have a kind of anxiety about how will our children judge us? I mean, that's true individually. Um, you know, it may be true at a moment in time, right? How will future generations judge our stewardship of the planet? How will future generations look back and ask us, what were you doing during an attempted coup uh, in that period of time? Um, you know, I think we think into those questions at both the individual familial level and maybe at the larger uh, cultural level as well. Um, and maybe one of the ways to modulate that judgment is to laugh together, right? That feels like a way of acknowledging the potentials of limitations and criticism, but also at the same time to have them forgiven. Laughter, I think, can be, particularly if it's mutual, can be forgiving in those ways. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah. Um, this is a passage actually from uh, Grace Paley, who's briefly name-checked um, in the book. Um, and this is a, a section, I'm going to abridge it very slightly, from the end of um, the last story in her collected volume, actually a, a favorite story of mine called Listening. And it's... Uh, it's a dialogue between Faith, the writer character, who's sort of a, an alter ego for Grace, I suppose, and a friend of hers called Cassie. Listen, Faith, why don't you tell my story? You've told everybody's story but mine. I don't even mean my whole story. That's my job. You probably can't. But I mean, you've just omitted me from the other stories. And I was there in the restaurant and the train right there. Where is Cassie? Where is my life? I took a deep breath and turned the car to the curb. I couldn't drive. We sat there for about 20 minutes. Every now and then I'd say, my God, or Christ Almighty, neither of whom I usually call on, but she was stern and wouldn't speak. Cassie, I finally said, I don't understand it either. It's true, though I know what you mean. It must feel for you like a great absence of yourself. How could I allow it? Oh, but why did you wait so long? How can you forgive me? Forgive you, she laughed. But she, was reached, but she reached across the clutch. With her hand, she turned my face to her own so my eyes would look into her eyes. You are my friend. I know that, Faith. But I promise you, I won't forgive you, she said. From now on, I'll watch you like a hawk. I do not forgive you. Do you want to share about why you chose that? Uh, yeah, I think there are a couple of things. I was actually um, teaching that passage uh, last semester, um, uh, to my 
graduate writing students. And I think there's something, you know, we, we're all anxious, and this book touches on it a little bit, and I thought about it before in other contexts, about questions of appropriation. Um, and I think it's uh, it's encouraging in some ways to think about, here's a character in Cassie who's reaching out to her friend Faith, the writer, to say, why have you not told my story, right? Um, it feels as though sometimes there's a... a a lack, even a harm in leaving out the stories of others from our work. And so, you know, Cassie's example feels as though it's a um, it's a kind of plea that I, I think um, reminds us that uh, the ways we think about questions of appropriation don't allow us to sort of say, oh, I'll just tell my own story and leave out other people's stories. And so that seems interesting to me as well. But there's something also in those last few lines, you are my friend, but I do not forgive you. Um, those two things seem contraindicated they seem mutually exclusive in certain ways but they also for that very reason to me seem really pretty intensely human uh, i think the nature of our existences as people is to often enshrine mutually um uh contradictory ideas um and i think about some of my own friendships and relationships um there's an odd way in which um the idea that one could be a friend and not forgiven uh, is strangely comforting at the same time as well to think that a friendship could persi persist beyond um, uh, the space of not being forgiven somehow also feels strangely heartening to me at this particular moment. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, we've actually been talking about some of these um, passages from the new book um, about the characters volunteering at a at a clinic, and I'm going to read a page uh, uh, or so about that, um, and then maybe talk about it afterwards. He's been thinking about volunteering as an escort at a clinic. He's been thinking about a man's part in abortion, what he can do, what he can say. It's a good thing to do, he tells his wife, a good time to do it. His college classes have ended for the year. The boy is still in school for another two months. You're supposed to be writing, researching, she reminds him. But maybe this is his research. Maybe it'll become writing. Maybe it's his therapy, she suggests. Maybe it's his test, he thinks. They never went to a clinic. Their procedure was at a hospital, what's sometimes called a therapeutic abortion as opposed to an elective one. They never had to pass any protesters. He makes a call, schedules a meeting. We had an abortion, he thinks he might say. But can we have an abortion, he wonders, or is the male use of the first person plural in this context a suspect as saying we are pregnant, something his wife always scorned? Yet if the phrase we have a child is fine, couldn't we had an abortion also be viable? Of course, he knows the unease with that use of we is more complicated. If it's a woman's right to choose, after all, what role does that leave for the man? Agree or disagree, it's her choice. There wasn't she his choice, he thinks, and he hers? I want to help, is what he says instead. I just want to help itself, a plea. Why did you choose that? For a couple of reasons, actually. You, you asked about passages that... Um, might have been challenging or subject to revision or change in the book. And, and I think this one represents a couple of those uh, things. Um, on the one hand, it speaks into um, the the characters is voicing some of my own concerns about writing into this topic and into this space. Um, and I think what I often try to remind myself is that those anxieties, those questions of can I write this, should I write this, um, 
aren't always things that should stop us, but I think are often the things that can become the subject of our writing. So in a way, um, you take the problem that might get in the way of the work and you make it central to the work. You write into that challenge. So that, that always feels like a useful thing to remind myself of. And I think the character in the book is sort of grappling with that space. Um, but also that section... Um, uh, represents, you know, one of the larger revisionary moves in the context of the book. Um, there was a point where the book was going to be organized as two distinct halves, um, you know, almost like a, a, a coin toss, right? You know, in one half, these characters would have uh, had a child in the other half, they wouldn't have had a child. Um, and the second half of the book would have been very much about the character's experience of uh, working as an escort at a clinic. And at a certain point, I realized, as I do nearly always with uh, my novels, that there was going to have to be some kind of fairly significant structural reimagination of the book, the second half, or the, the split between the two halves uh, wasn't quite working. It felt a little too schematic, I think, for me, ultimately. And so um, the sequence now where he volunteers at the clinic is something that came from part two that was reintegrated into part one, which became the book as a whole, I think in various ways. So that movement, um, which feels as though it's always a, a bit of a challenge, but it's also one that I've experienced so often in the context of working on various books, they always go through this kind of structural upheaval, um, felt like one that would, uh, you know, would speak to the brief you were, you were asking about places, parts of the book that had changed significantly. Where do you write? Right now, uh, you know, I'm at my kitchen table. And that's sort of where I did most of the copy editing um, for this book um, and do a fair bit of my writing for there is a home office here um, and during the pandemic my wife who uh, also works is has needed that more than I have I think in many ways um, but truth be told um, I probably didn't write very much in that designated office um, even before the pandemic, and I very rarely write in my office at school. I think I'm generally resistant to writing anywhere that I'm supposed to because it feels a bit too much like work. Um, so even before this point, um, and before I graduated at the kitchen table, I was at the dining room table writing, I think, previous novels. Um, and, you know, I wonder why that is. It's probably a slight sense of playing hooky from the places where I'm supposed to be doing it. It's a way of avoiding it, that feeling of it being work. Um, I think I probably also like to be in the in larger spaces. I can just walk around, which I often tend to do. I tend to be bouncing up and down from the desk a little bit as I'm working. Um, but what I have noticed lately is that I have tended to do, even in these sort of more you know public familial spaces, um, I tend to do most of my writing when everybody else is asleep. So I get up fairly early, even though we no longer have to do the school run, you know, as with remote schooling. I still find myself getting up as if I were going to take my son to school at six in the morning. Um, and I've enjoyed the quietness before everybody else gets up for the writing. There's a great line of Kafka's that I came across recently where he talks about how um, writing means revealing ourselves to excess. Um, and this is why we can never be alone enough whenever we are writing. And um, I, I do like to be alone. I think in the past, I would tend to write when others were out of the house. Uh, and given that that's a little harder in the last year or so, I like to do it when other people in the house are asleep, I think. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? <sighs> it's possible that in many ways, uh, teaching, which I love, uh, and academic academic administration, which I love a little bit less, tend to take me away from writing uh, a lot of the time anyway. Um, if I were wanting to just 
clear my head. Um, you know, I used to enjoy, and again, all before the pandemic, um, uh, playing in a fairly regular and mostly very friendly uh, and even slightly incompetent soccer game with my MFA students. And something about that physical exertion, I think, for all of us um, felt head clearing in really nice and fun ways. Um, and the other space, again, one that I haven't revisited for a while in the last few months is um, I like going to movie houses. I like actually going especially to see sort of dumb action movies because um uh, my brain uh, switches off in a certain way. Uh, I tend not to analyze those movies as, as written objects. Um, there's a way almost in which watching them is a little like watching um, the flames in a fireplace. I find my mind wandering in pleasant and relaxing ways. So those are some of the escapes, I suppose. Do you have a favorite mind-numbing action movie? Um, I, I have a few. They're, they're fairly embarrassing, I think, to think about. Uh, I did, you know, because we've just gone through the festive season, watch um, Die Hard, that great Christmas movie again <laughs> recently. And um, and it remained fairly enjoyable to me, I have to say. Um, so I'm not sure if it counts, counts quite as a favorite um but it was a, a recently revisited one that i've enjoyed and it's been uh, slightly disappointing to me that i uh, that there haven't been as many of them coming out lately uh, again because of the pandemic so i've missed some of those have you ever seen rush hour with chris tucker and jackie chan i certainly have and uh, very much enjoyed those movies as well the first particularly i think uh, that some of the sequels seemed a, a little less uh, the novelty had worn off just a little bit at that point as well uh, but again there's something about um when i think about those movies uh, there's a there's also a kind of nice toggling i think between uh, action and comedy in several of those movies most obviously i think in in the in the jackie chan ones um and that has something to do i think with that back and forth uh, trajectory between um drama and comedy that is somewhere in the background of my own book i think in some ways as well it's odd because i feel if i go and see a comedy uh, there is nothing less funny to me than a movie that says i will now make you laugh for the next hour and a half uh, i don't know why i'm resistant to that but it's maybe even something about the um the surprise of comedy is gone if this thing says hey i'm a comedy um i, I feel like i lose some of that pleasure but the the sense that jokes can therefore be embedded in the middle of you know action um or that they can be embedded in the middle of you know trauma i suppose in the context of the book that somehow uh, works much better for me at least who do you show your work to first to get feedback uh my i met my wife in a creative writing workshop many many years ago and she remains um very much um uh my first and primary reader um and one who will call me out on all the bullshit her instincts are extremely uh good so i, I value that enormously say to my students you know in workshop that if you find a great reader maybe sometimes you know I, I went so far as to marry my best reader how have you dealt with rejection <laughs> um well I, i've had a fair bit of experience with it i suppose as i think it's true of every writer i mean i, I often try and counsel uh students who are struggling with those spaces and of course when I, whatever I say to them is also exactly what I try to say to myself um, that every successful writer that I know as different as they all are the one thing they have in common is lots and lots of experience of rejection but also somehow plowing through that rejection um, it's funny also in the context of the book which thinks a lot about shame that I, I think one of my students recently talked about 
in the context of, um, I think, not winning a prize or an award, uh, that the feeling was a feeling of shame. And I, yeah, I, I actually try to talk to them a little bit about that because I think sometimes um, it's difficult to just internalize that shame. I, I like to point out that the writing life and most writers that they know have, have gone through those experiences that it's the norm actually I think in many ways which is of course why why we celebrate the successes um, but a couple of things I try to tell myself um, when a book is rejected you know if a bad review comes in is that um, I think for a book or a story to be loved it has to risk being hated by somebody um, that there's something about intimacy of connection between reader and writer and between reader and character and reader and story that we all I think you know seek out but the nature of intimacy is that it also excludes somebody else it's hard to feel intimate with something unless that also means that somebody else isn't intimate with that I think we like to feel singled out in that connection so um so it's almost literally therefore impossible to please all the people all the time then maybe we wouldn't even wish to do that it seems that that would be anti-intuitive to the development of that kind of intimacy of connection that we're looking for um and then lastly and, and maybe recently because it feels as though the idea of losing and being a loser is such a kind of toxic um accusation in the culture at the moment um I sort of remind myself that it's okay for writers to be losers. We often end up writing about people who lose in life or people who are struggling in life. And that for us to have some experience of that, even in our own writing lives, is probably a decent way of equipping us to write about those characters going forward. How would we manage that if we didn't feel that sense of rejection and disappointment that I think very often our characters and nearly all of us as human beings in life go through as well, of course, from time to time. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> well, as you know, Mitzi, this comes up, this question comes up in the book. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the answer that the character gives is, um, is fountain, I think, at the time that he's asked, um, because uh, his child has used that word uh, as his sort of first, um, you know, simile. He says, oh, that tree looks like a fountain, you know, because the branches seem like they're sprouting up from there. Um, and the character uh, then laments the fact that having said that publicly somewhere in an interview or what have you, um, some blogger somewhere um, calls him a smug parent, a parent and makes fun of him and deploys a very rude, and I won't repeat it here, um, word about the writer himself. And uh, that is one of those details that draws somewhat from life. So I have a kind of wariness now of um, identifying uh, favorite words, I think. It feels a little risky uh, in certain contexts. Um, maybe the word I would use, I wouldn't, I, I will choose a swear word, a British one, uh, not the same one uh, as is hurled at the character in the book. Um, and I hope this one I can say. Um, it's the British word wanker, uh, which essentially means jerk. Um, and I think I, I, it, it feels appealing to me because it uh, manages to both convey anger and humor at the same time. It's a silly, angry word. And I think there's something maybe um, 
maybe in the book, maybe in me, um, that there's something about a negotiation of anger and humor um, that somehow feels important to me as well. So that word sort of captures a little of that flavor, I suppose. Well, thank you so much for your time and talking about this book. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I really appreciate the thoughtful questions, Mitzi, and the, and the time to think into them as well. So no, thank you so much as well. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Peter Ho Davies, author of the novel, A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Kevin McElvoy, who writes poetically about parenthood, silence, and the nature of our human connections. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with George Saunders, Anna North, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, and Alan Lightman. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay safe and healthy. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.